You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years of this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruven Pupko. Hi, I'm Aprom Kivalevich, and I'm here with Rabbi Ruben Pupko. Rabbi Pupko, we know that in Canada and the United States, throughout the world, people are bemoaning the existence of something called cancel culture, where persons have a certain idea or an opinion that they write or they speak about. It's captured. It's in a blog. It's something they might have said to a news reporter. And then there's almost, if it's something which goes against the zeitgeist of the era or of what's happening at that period, immediately condemnations are issued throughout all social media. And in many cases, um, people not only lose stature in their community, but lose their jobs, aren't able to find work later. It's something that attaches to them, whether it's the term racist, whether it's the term misogynist, whatever it is, many people have bemoaned this and it's happening all over. And we've heard Donald Trump and others say that how terrible cancel culture is, of course, because people are trying to cancel him completely. We talked about that last week. However, we as Jews, as you know, Rabbi, are not unfamiliar with this. We know that sometimes things come out of our tightly held community. Words are uttered by members of the community. Things happen. And in some cases, we invoke something like a cheyrim, a ban against someone for things the person might have done or said. And it's, there are processes, according to Allah, which you're very familiar with, I'm sure, about ways to the person can be brought back in and the ways the person can't isn't canceled completely. In that case, we're different. But I want to ask you, because I lived as a Rav as well, and I think it's a very good issue to explore with you, which is sometimes in a shul, which is meant to be this big, large umbrella community where everybody can fit in, and you've talked about your shul. Talk about the situations where you've had to cancel someone out of the shul. Someone who you've had to, you, they, they've had to leave the shul. They couldn't be part of your greater community. And I know it's always done by rabbis with a lot of um, hesitation and trepidation. But since you have been the rub for so long, I'm sure situations have come up. So why don't you uh, inform me and our listeners as to the struggle when this occurs? What happens within yourself and, and, and how... Some cases, you don't have to be particular, but in general, how you would decide and what would be the rules of thumb for this type of situation. Okay, a long setup, Rabbi P. Go ahead. It's a very complicated subject because there are obviously nuances <clears throat> between different levels of malfeasance, gradations, uh, the, the time uh, since any misbehavior may have taken place. They're easy cases. I had a very easy case, a horrible case, but an easy case. One of my earliest years in, in Montreal, I get a call from the, the son of a member 
uh, Rabbi, can you visit me in prison? So I said, to, uh, I was shocked. I said, okay. I went down to visit him and I asked him what he was in for. And, uh, which, you know, normal question to ask somebody when they're in prison. And, and he told me what it was. It was a, uh, a heinous, uh, accusation. And, and that was actually subsequently proven, uh, that he had done something with children. And, uh, obviously he was never welcome back to the synagogue. Obviously. That's an easy case. It's cut and dry. Uh, it's, uh, not only is it extreme version of moral turpitude, but it's also clear and present danger. So that's easy. Those are the easy cases. Um, for us to deal with, they're horrible. The most, more horrible it is, the easier it is to deal with. Before you move on, I just want to ask you, since we, I, I've talked about it on one of my other podcast programs, which I'm going to uh, plug here shamelessly, uh, my Standing in Two Words with Sam Juni, uh, The Abusers Among Us. Um, I just want to ask you, that case, I, I assume he was eventually released from prison. This Right. He, right. Yeah, sure. Did that person find any show that welcomed him? Um, if memory serves... He started attending another synagogue. The rabbi there was unaware of his past. He was made aware by myself of what had happened. And then he was no longer welcome there. And then, as far as I know, he never tried again. So, at least in, in, in what you know in Montreal, in that specific situation, that person was canceled. Because right. basically, because of that act, we cannot allow him right. into any connection to what we would call the vibrant life of a community. Right. But, but I do know of a case in Montreal... It was never adjudicated, but it was certainly uh, serious accusations were leveled against somebody in the, uh, in the in the yeshiva community, and that person left where he was and went somewhere else, and he's still there. So I, there are cases where what I would say the right thing doesn't happen. Right, and and, and and again, I, 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 uh, I, again, our listeners can can check out that that podcast because we talk a little bit about mm-hmm. about that event, uh, about that type of situation where the abusers actually move on. And but I would also say, even on that subject, and I'm going to say something that people won't want to hear. Even on that subject, I want to hear. I, oh, you, I, I want to hear it now because you tell me people don't oh, want to. Even hear on it. that subject, yeah, the the criminals involved the abusers involved obviously cancel is not enough okay but it's the least we can do as a community as synagogues but the attempt to go back in history and re-adjudicate cases from the 70s not about the perpetrator but how people dealt with the perpetrator is sometimes unfair and i'm going to say something which is shocking only because of my age but people don't understand what we did not understand in the 70s. People do not understand that. I know I'm going to say two things which sound completely insane and are completely insane. But the reality is, in the 1970s, when you look at stories like happened at Yeshiva University. Finkelstein. With the wrestling coach. Finkelstein. Right. In those stories, um and, and, and people look back and they say, oh, Rabbi Lamb of Blessed Memory should have done this. And th-. what pe- people really didn't understand two things. Number one, they didn't understand that if somebody did it once, it meant they were doing it all the time. And I know now, now that we, we know what we know and we've known it for some time now, 
not talking we just learned it yesterday, we learned it the last 20, 30 years, that if you do it once, it means you're always going to do it and always have done it. And number two, what we didn't understand, I know this sounds nuts, is we didn't understand that if you do it to somebody, you ruin their lives. We didn't get it. Uh, we thought, you know, it was a, well, it was a one-off. I can get following the couple of Michigan's would be the expression. Oh, he went crazy. He went off. And because of that, to judge acts that took place or, or, or judgments that were made 50 years ago through the filter of what we now know, that is sometimes unfair. I, in, the purpose of me saying this is, 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 is that when, when people hear these stories about what people did or in these cases didn't do in the, in, in the, in, in earlier decades, it, the judgment should be tempered. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think that it, however it bespeaks, and I want, I want you to get to your original point where you're going, uh, before, right. just, just to comment back on this, um, it shows, and, and, and you have to compare us to the other religious communities. Um, again, the Catholics, of course, there's a whole different uh, uh, kettle of fish. But the other religious communities, in terms of how connected they were to the psychological truths and papers that were being written already at the time, meaning I am. it's clear to me that this idea of recidivist behavior and the fact of, 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 of trauma, it was already being... Uh, expressed in uh, academic circles and and that higher echelon of, of of thought, but it had not yet filtered down to educators whatsoever. And I think it bespeaks of the fact that the great gap between the research and the way people are actually acting, we were we were sort of in a in, in a daze about that. And I think we live in a, a, a not only has the research caught up with us. I think we live in a era where that type of research connects to us a lot quicker. Research in general, as we know with COVID and other and, things. And, and by the way, it's not a new thing. I mean, my mother, of blessed memory, who was born in 1924 and came to America when she was five years old and graduated Temple University in Philly and very highly educated woman who spoke Yiddish fluently, but I grew up in English. Um, she, uh, I mean, she told me a story from her childhood in Philadelphia where she said to me, everyone knew there was a Malamed that all the girls had to stay away from. Yeah. And I remember when I had my first daughter back in 1980, uh, my mother saying to me, and, and she never spoke this way. She was a very happy, cheerful, non-neurotic woman. My mother said to me, uh, Ruby is what she called me. Uh, your, your daughters are going to get a little older. Whatever you do, never, ever, ever let any man babysit her alone, relative, friend, non-relative. You never leave a girl alone with a man. Yeah, and well, she was like the furthest. She was never nervous or scared about anything. She wasn't like one of these people who, you know, walk around, you know, wringing their hands, you know, convinced that there was a catastrophe around every corner. But that's the only parental advice I ever got from her. Wow. So never leave your daughters alone with a man. So it's interesting how in an innate sense people knew and yet 
uh, they allowed this sort of ignorance to, to foster. Mm-hmm. I was trying to create a sociological uh, narrative that has to do with the globalization and the idea of how connected we are to our computers and that information that was uh, is available online now becomes accessible. But you're right. It could be inherently the, the mamas knew. Okay, let's move on. Let's, let's, so let's put the sexual... But I would also say, I mean, okay, people always question, was it always like this? You know, did it always happen? Is it more prevalent now? I believe it is more prevalent now. I believe it's more prevalent when you have a culture that does not, uh, uh, you know, regard sexual restraint as an important uh, feature, uh, then uh, whether, whether that, that, that certainly influences how healthy people behave and how, you know, sick people behave. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to throw in one other thing before we get to we'll get off of the sexual uh, predator thing. Um, I think... And, and, and I might be totally wrong here, but my guts tell me I'm right. I think the more it becomes accessible in the popular culture, uh, for example, we all know about the, one of the greatest uh, true fiction novels that was ever written in Cold Blood by Truman Capote, where he describes the, the killings in Kansas. Um, that was incredible because you now had a, 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 a readership of getting to the mind of killers and people were reading about that. And I think the more you have books and, and, and programs about that, the regular person, let's say me and you, hopefully, well, that's interesting. But then you have the person who, who, who might have a tendency there when he reads the story of someone else, when he reads a Manson story, when he reads a Ted Bundy story, when he reads about that and he reads even though it's being done in a in, in a in a way to condemn i agree with you. Yeah, it yeah. opens it's like it's like Chazal say when you see the bali avera out there and you know they're there you say hey i can be like that too and i think that that it becomes more imaginable right and therefore like... the inhibition falls off well that guy was caught but you know what Hey, that's something I could do as well. I agree with you 100%. And so, so, so it, it, it's sort of like it worked oppositely. In other yes. words, people thought, let's, let us, let us highlight, uh, like Capote's cases and these other cases. And this way people know how terrible it is. Well, but that also stoked, <laughs> it stoked sure. the ch- charcoals. It stoked the embers well, for, you know, where the people on the fringes of mental health say, Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's the way you do it? Maybe I could do it that way as well. And, oh, no. <laughs> no, so you're absolutely right. So, so, okay, but this is fascinating. But let's talk about the cases that me and you have dealt with as rabbis sure. where where you have someone who the, the issue now is, are we going to kick this guy out of the shul? All right, so let's say you had a typical case. A uh, typical case is a guy, um, a lawyer, embezzles money from a client. Uh gets a suspended sentence and is disbarred or maybe serves three months or whatever. What are you doing? What are you doing? Um, if you treat, if you act as if nothing happened, you are contributing to a culture that doesn't stigmatize um, this kind of crime. And you're in fact making it, uh, you're emboldening it. And, uh, so where do you have your, what does that do to your own moral posture? It compromises everyone. However, is is every crime a death sentence? Does every crime mean complete banning? Are there gradations? Is there a time period? Is there a manner? In other words, you know, I'll, I'll give you the shame example. A friend of mine was at a show in New Jersey a couple of years ago, and there was a big, big kiddish in show. 
what was the kiddish for? A guy just got out of prison and made a kiddish for himself and the show, you know, was welcoming this guy back out of prison. Now that's obviously insane. Obviously. Let me just, let me just throw in there one word. Raboshkin, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. That, that was also insane. Well, I'll get to Raboshkin in a second. Yeah. But... Which is, because you got to distract from what I want to say, but yeah, I want to talk about Raboshkin. <laughs> um, we, that's we, perfect. We, we, I think we, I think we need to, on our program, we need to have the, uh, the, the extras. We'll probably have, right. yeah. <laughs> here's the normal conversation and, and we have all the extra stuff. The extras, that, right, right. If, so, you, if you want to pay so, a little bit more, but go ahead. But so, does that mean the guy can't dabble with a minion the rest of his life? That means you know when he lets him in. Well, what do you do? So, I, you know, in the case like that, I would let the guy come back to show, but I wouldn't give him an aliyah. For how long? How long would you we not get? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think everybody's different. Uh, would I not give him an aliyah for his yard site? I might make a difference between Monday and Shabbos. Wow. You know, I might. I don't know. I'm just saying is that there's. Not every cancellation is complete and total. Well, you know, but, some, but some, let's uh, say, I, yeah. but let's say the guy had defrauded members that are in the building that are in my mini. Do I let him back in then? No, because that is not only an offense against morality and law; it's also offensive to the people he dabbled with. Okay, you so can't well, want it in front of a, somebody, a victim, and that is sensitivity to the victim. In other words. You, yes, you, and I don't believe that's hypocritical. I believe that's just normal, basic human sensitivity. If he defrauded somebody, he did a Ponzi scheme with other members of the synagogue, he wants to come back, I don't let him come back. Because it's painful for the other people. That's a simple bit on the You don't do that. It's not a, it's a, I, I don't know if that's called a moral judgment or a societal judgment, but that's different. It is different. What if a guy, Got into trouble. And no, let, 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 let me just push back for a second. How about if you paid them back? How about if as no, part of the judgment? Sense. The only way if, I, I would ever allow somebody like that back is if the victims came to me and asked me. The victims, the victims the, came and asked me for him to come back. I wouldn't say yes. How about one? Would one victim be different than ten? How about if it's only one person sure. on the show? But okay. again, it would, if, even if it's only one, if there's no if there's no. If the victim is made uncomfortable by his perpetrator's presence, I wouldn't allow the perpetrator in. We care more about how victims feel than how perpetrators. Okay, that's that's common sense. I would also say that if the person's malfeasance was a chil Hashem, that means he was a front page criminal or even a page three criminal, I would also treat it differently. I would also... And there's no simple black and white in any of this stuff, right? If, if somebody, uh, you, you know, it depends. It, 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 all these cases are different. If somebody, uh, let's say, there's again, there are easy stories. The one time I, I, the other time I banned somebody is he was clearly an abusive husband. He had perpetrated violence, right? And, and, and the woman came to me, and, and I knew the case was real, and I knew the story was true. The man didn't deny it. I didn't let him back in control because. That is a situation where it's not just, and I don't mean the word, I hate to use the word just in this situation because it's a heinous thing, not just a crime against an individual. That is a symbol of a pathology which is corrosive. And it means everyone to have that guy in show, to, you know, a, a violent perpetrator like that, an abusive husband. Financial crimes are, are, are a little bit different, but people are people who've been victimized will tell you, actually, it's not that much different. And um, 
and the uh, and therefore well, let, let, let me ask you about let me ask you about the abusive husband just for a second. And, and yeah, I had I had a, some cases that were somewhat similar to that, actually very similar to that. Um, by by doing such a thing, so let's say you know let's say it's uh, Ralph and Alice, right? So let's say Ralph actually does punch Alice, right? It's not just to the moon, but he actually does uh, slap her up almost you know halfway into the stratosphere. But nobody knows that. Right, except Alice comes to Rabbi Pupko and says, um, "Ralph has been." Uh, I wouldn't let him in. Show. But no one knows about it now. I wouldn't allow it in. Okay, so now, so now Norton comes over to you and says, "Hey, uh, Rabbi Pupko, how come my buddy Ralph isn't allowed in Shul anymore? Or doesn't haven't you now sort of like opened up this can of worms? And now you tell everybody okay. about it. No, no, yeah, you don't let somebody. You don't let a violent perpetrator." Even even though he's only violent to Alice, you don't want anyone who's who's prone to violence in your shul at all. No, I, I mean, it's a PR problem with the perpetrator worrying about his public relations. I'm not, not my concern. Okay, let me let me push back again. Again, I am not trying to say. No, that, no, I understand you. No. I'm just I'm, I'm just I'm just asking you. Right. What and, and and this is something that I discovered many times. The person who you feel should be canceled out of the shul has a lot of important friends. Yeah. And sometimes they're the board of right. the shul. Now, yeah. I don't know the way it works in Beth Israel, Beth Aaron, about you and the board. But how there are many rabbis out there who I hope are going to start listening to this program and getting advice from you who realize that, hey, you're just an employee. The board makes the decisions. Um, what happens then when the board sort of, you know, is, should, uh, what's the rabbi supposed to do in that case? I, it sounds like you've got a, a, a great amount of leeway, and the board leaves you alone. Oh no! You know, listen, I, you know, listen. Uh, first of all, I don't think any rabbi is an employee. I've never seen. I've never seen myself that way, and I've never seen any other rabbi that way. We have positions. We're not employees. Uh, we are employed by one person and one person only. When I and I mean that euphemistically, we're employed by a kaddish baruch, and that's it. Uh, we are not employed by a board. We are not employed by an executive. And if you have a show that has Derek Eretz on a moral issue, we're not talking here about what kind of programming to run for teenagers. We're talking about a moral issue. There never should be an issue. But again, a rabbi who doesn't enjoy that kind of support from his executive or board either didn't conduct himself in the appropriate way before that or managed things appropriately before that, or is cursed to be in a mini year in a uh, and, uh, and, and the point is, uh, on moral issues, on those kinds of issues, if, if, if the rabbi knows how to approach these issues and know how to deal with Balabat, in other words, if I had to throw somebody out of Shul who I knew had friends on the executive board, I've never had that situation. But if I did, I don't get up in Shul Sabbath morning without telling anybody and throw them out. I don't throw them out beforehand. I sit down with my executive. I go through the story and I explain it to them. I get them on board before I do it. In other words, that doesn't mean I have sacrificed my moral autonomy to a board. It just means I'm smart tactically. And if I want to avoid having a machlekes about a canceling somebody, I make sure everyone's on side beforehand. And if you do that, these are simple steps of communication beforehand. You know, I will listen. We were both in yeshiva. You know how it is. Uh, Rashivas make fun of rabbis for kowtowing to Balabat. And when you and I both know that they, more than anybody else, kowtow to Balabat. <laughs> okay, and, and, and the rabbis I know who conduct themselves with dignity 
were much less susceptible to lay pressure than some of our Russian shivas who strut around in front of 18 years old bragging about how much autonomy they have and, 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 and what a free hand they have. But in fact, it's the exact opposite of the truth. But Rabbanim who know how to, who have a little bit of seichel, and know how to deal with Balabatim, and more importantly, know how to get things done that are moral, appropriate, and halakhic, shouldn't have problems. But it's all about making the right decision, and then, as importantly, is how to employ that decision in a way which is effective. And the way to do it effectively is, in fact, to communicate with people and to make the case behind closed doors before anything has to happen publicly. I'll tell you, you know, I, 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 I uh, envy you in so many ways. You know, you're my, my, my old close friend from high school, and I envy you in so many ways. And I envy you the fact that you have this type of relationship and have had uh, in your rabbinic career. I would also say, just make my point. I was not so lucky. And my board and I were constantly uh, and battling about uh, where, what was my area. And um, my first contract, I, I spelled it out clearly that, uh, you know, I am the arbiter and I'm the final arbiter. But this did not sit well with them. And there was a lot of hassling. And when I had a case that had to do with kicking somebody out of the shul, uh, and, and because it was a, an ultimatum was issued by one of the other members, the other member felt threatened. And it was unclear whether that threat was a, a real threat or not. Um you know, it, 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 they, the board was uncomfortable with me making that decision, especially since the, we didn't have 1200 or whatever it is, 700 families. You know, no, we, we were assured that the loss and the, uh, and, and if it would get out that we kicked someone out, uh, we were afraid of the ripple effect. On the other hand, uh, the person who was demanding the expulsion was someone who was so crucial to, uh, the shoals, vibrancy and viability so what i did was and i don't know if you've ever had to do it uh, was say look um i spoke with the board i said i'm gonna ask a shiloh i'm gonna refer this back to a greater rabbi than me i'm going to go with a sock of someone beyond and i'll i'll be much see the question that i think sometimes can also work right instead of you know the rabbi rolling up his sleeves and saying look i'm the final sock here what the rabbi can say is we're following the greater halacha and the greater halacha comes from someone that you also have to count out to. You also have to be involved. Exactly. I, I, again, that was my eight. So I don't know what you think about that. I, I, I'll tell you, it makes a lot of sense. But here, here's what I would say more generally is that whenever I see a rabbi succeed as a rabbi and their father was not a rabbi, I'm astonished because Everything I know about how to navigate shul life, halachically, politically, socially, whatever it is, I know from my father. And I knew stuff I didn't know I knew until I was in this in, in similar situation. I grew up in the ambiance of a rabbinic home, growing up in a shul, and I, I know Balabatim and I understand shul politics. I don't I, I don't go to board meetings or executive meetings anymore at my shul. Because I know exactly what every human being is going to say there, and I know what the, what positions they're going to take, and I know what to before I go in there. Because I've been around long enough, and I know people well enough, and I've been doing this, and I've been witnessing it since I'm four years old. So it's second nature to me. When I see Rabbanim do well, who didn't grow up like I grew up in the house of a Rav, it is astonishing to me. 
because I am not smarter than anybody else, but I've, I've had experiences which have allowed me to, to definitely deal with this. Now that my sons are both rabbis, they say the same thing to me. And I hear the stories they have and the conflicts they have and how they were resolved. And they learned it from me, but I know they didn't learn it from me. They really learned it from my father, right? Not from watching it, but from watching me, which is watching my father. Wow. So, um, so you learn things. You learn things. It, it, it's, it comes second nature. I have never in my life, and, and I know this is going to sound crazy to people. I have never in my life had a fight with my balabai. Not once. I had maybe one conflict that was quickly resolved about a, a chazan that I that I felt could no longer stay in the girl. It was, the whole conversation was less than 90 seconds. The whole conflict was less than 90 seconds. I've never negotiated a salary that took longer than two minutes to negotiate. Okay, I, 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 I've never dealt with this kind of stuff. But I, but I know my colleagues, my age and younger than myself, most of them at this point are younger than myself, uh, who have conflicts that I don't understand, that simple seichel would have avoided all of it. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a funny story. I just got off the phone about an hour ago with a close friend of mine who's a rabbi at a big school in New York, and we're talking about a rabbinic succession story. You know, there was an older rabbi, and they were hiring a, a younger rabbi. The other rabbi was going to be emeritus. And um, and the mistakes that were made when there was a fellow hired who ended up not getting the job, even though he was hired, because of how he negotiated. He walked into the room with Balabatim, or his interlocutor did, and Basically said, I want to know an exact date when the senior rabbi is retiring. You're going to leave this book. You don't talk like that. A show is not a law practice where the senior partner has to retire at 65. You don't walk into a show and show a lack of derech for an older row. Nobody benefits from that. Well, about them don't want to see a young rabbi disrespect an older rabbi. They don't want to see that. And it's wrong besides. And, uh, and I know the guy that, uh, that that ultimately did get the position was a guy who walked in and said, I really hope the senior rabbi sticks around a long time. I need his help advice. That guy got the job in two minutes. So it's simple seichel. And I understand a balabas who, you know, who thinks about negotiating business to that would never understand that. Of course you walk in and you say, what is that guy retiring? Of course you have that. That's normal business. Show is not normal business. Shul is not normal business. It's not. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, and I know our, I, I came up with this title, Emeritus Rex, and it sounds like <laughs> you're going to be Rex a lot more you're going to than to be Emeritus. But what I will say uh, is that uh, many times, just two points on this, uh, many times Shul's have a rabbi who isn't, a sage as you are as they get older and they're having a lot of, of they're having a lot of issues and that's part of why they've brought in uh this younger person and i think the the older rabbis need a little bit of training too sometimes to know you know it's like they say the chazan has to know when he can't hit those high notes anymore oh for sure no, listen, i know a lot of, i know a lot of cases where uh, you know not so young rabbis got positions there's an old guy old rabbi sticking around and they stick around too long and they make trouble. I know old rabbis who behave themselves. And I know old rabbis who couldn't tolerate the presence of a young guy. I'll tell you, but I'd say this story already. If I told you this story, I, did I ever tell you a story about Rabbi Felder's opinion about young rabbis? Rabbi Gedalia Felder? Yeah. Toronto? Did I ever tell you the story? When I was a Considering, kid. Considering, yeah, no, no, let's hear it. It was a very funny thing. I was a kid. I was, a, as you mentioned once before, 
I was in Oshawa, Ontario for a couple of years. And I used to go to the rabbinical meetings in Toronto and have like Italian television at the time. Was, was, was at the meetings and he made his disparaging comment about young rabbis so I asked him because right, I'm a chutzah, I said to him in Yiddish I said when does a young rabbi become an old rabbi and without missing a beat he was so smart he said and he starts hating young rabbis so that was that was Rabbi Tobin's response it was very funny but um, but the um but the reality is that, uh, yes, sure, no, there's a responsibility uh, the, of older rabbis to uh, help a younger rabbi, and not all do. And, uh, and, and But it's also a responsibility of younger rabbis to have some derecheres. But again, I've seen mistakes made on both sides of that equation. It sounds like that might be something that, uh, as the smichas are being... Uh, promulgated in all these uh, yeshivas and, 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 and places, that should be part of the smicha pr- process, is to, re- is to recognize that type I of... I don't know uh, if you can teach these things. I don't know. And I think you've also, you know, every time I talk to you, uh, I actually, I know I'm chanting I'm, I'm, I'm you uh, terribly every single time we talk, and uh, I'm not fishing for anything here, but I now have a new Havana, and I don't know if anybody else does, to the idea of why it's so crucial to have a Rabbonus be Yerusha. You know, this is one of the big debates in halacha. Does, is Rabbonus something that should be be Yerusha or not? Um, you would assume it should be a meritocracy. It should it be based be on, right? Right. Absolutely. But on the other hand, the, the idea that there should be, it should be the Rav's son is also very significant in halacha. And many people have questioned why it should be that way. Why, right? And I think you have given a, an incredible rationale. If you have someone who, who despite his, his brilliance, his acumen and learning, uh, his ability to pass Kanishayla and to be a teacher, but didn't have it in the bones, in the banner, of what it meant to be a Rav, he probably will have problems as somewhere down the line. Whereas the, again, I think you're jumping, you're jumping a little bit with all respect. You don't have to have any respect, but go ahead. No, no, no. What I mean is, it's one thing to say children of rabbis have a leg up in terms of their experiences. That doesn't necessarily translate that position should be by Yerusha. I mean, I, I'm not sure that's a great idea. I don't know if position should be. I mean, there, was, there are very few schools where you've seen sons of rabbis take over directly from their fathers. It's not unheard of. And we all know there's cases where it's done and done very successfully. But sometimes, but but again, what I would argue for is that children of rabbis have advantages of experiences. And that doesn't mean um, that non that, that the, the children of non-rabbis, you know, should be looked at skeptically. I don't, I'm not saying that. I'm just, I'm just in, you know, in, in my own case, I know where I learned how to behave, which has helped me enormously, helped me enormously, decisively in my life is what I learned from my father. And, uh, and, and I get the nachas of seeing it uh, with my kids. But, um, but I, I, I don't, I'm not sure rabbinical position should be by Yerusha, but, uh, but certainly the experiences of being the child of a rabbi, at least in my case, was, uh, again, decisively uh, helpful for me. Right. And no definitely question. in terms of uh, making that dynamic work. So I guess we've, yeah. you know, I, I think we've covered quite a bit. No, but of- also, I tell you, what, one of the problems is that, and again, I don't know, you know, it could be I'm out of touch a little bit because I'm a little more removed from, from those days, but it's also my impression that some of the guys coming out of yeshivas 
really don't get how to function with Balabat because, again, they grew up with yeshivas. Their Jewish experience is yeshiva-centric, not kehila-centric. Those are their Jewish experiences. The formative Jewish experiences took place in the yeshiva. And what did they see in yeshiva? They engaged with, 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 their, with their rebbies and with their rosh yeshivas who have spent their entire lives with children not in the real world, with children. And they were given, Shiva guys come out with a very distorted sense of the sway uh, uh, that a Rosh Shiva has and tries to translate that to a shul context. Right? A Rav cannot talk to Balabatim and treat Balabatim and order Balabatim around the way a Rosh Shiva can an 18-year-old. And they need to understand that they their formative rabbinical influences are not necessarily a model for how they behave with adults. Yeah, I, I would just say that that's a great point, but I think we need to sort of like break it down a little bit. There are, and, and I, I have witnessed this when I go to Flatbush and other places, and I'm sure it's true in Lakewood, where you do have guys who were in Kailu, who were Mahabri Svarim, who weren't necessarily trained uh, in, in what we call in this classic rabbinical training, who make the uh, transition very easily because the shuls that they lead, right. these, these, and they aren't just little shtiblach. Some of them... No, no, you're have, right. You're right. And, and you're I, right. They I think, generated their own constituency. Right. You're and, right. And you do have that in Flatbush and these in, in, in Marine Park and other places where basically all the other guys that show up are also quote unquote right. yeshiva type people. Right. So you have you have a complete easy transplant of yeshiva culture to a shul setting. I agree with you. Right. And that is much more prevalent. And, and I, I think that's happening. Happened. And I think that's yes, it's I a agree. very good it's a very good thing because that, that is going to be the types of shuls that the uh, skillful, talented yeshiva light can go to. Whereas right. a shul right. like you, a shul like yours, or here in Elizabeth or other places, they're going to cross those guys off, and the people yeah. they're going to look for is either YU. Just to be honest with you, uh, right. I'm going to put a little bit on the side for a minute, but it's going to either be YU or Chavetz Chaim, right. right? YU and Chavetz Chaim is really. That and both of those places, Yeshiva University and Chafetz Chaim, put an, 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 a very great stress on knowing the uh, tenor and the nature of, of Balabatim. I think you'd agree as far as that goes. It's listen. There are a lot of trend lines out there. The uh, quality of some of the rabbis coming out of it is something is, uh, is not as high as you would want it to be. But the um, I don't know. I'm not sure where it's headed, but. You're right. There are many shuls now, in the New York area especially, that have become mini yeshivas. In other words, so that the the culture or the dynamic between the Rashiva and Talmidim is has been transplanted to the dynamic between the Rav and Balabat. Yes. That's right. right. And, and, and those shuls, again, Baruch Hashem, that the yerba, they should be Yerba B'Yisrael because people need a place to, to have a social right. communal outlet. They're not going to have great websites where the rabbi teaches them how to make turkey. Well, I, I remember the beginning of COVID, I was getting these uh, audio tapes from a couple of, uh, that were recorded by a couple of rabbis or of, of a couple of rabbis in, in the New York area, Brooklyn, of, of, a, of, a, of, of rabbis you know, who were upset with the closures at that time and were yelling at his people for how could they... In other words, it was a tone 
that I've never heard Rabbanim take with Balabatim before. It just it just wasn't the way people talked. I don't know. It was it was uh, it, it it was caustic. Uh, you know, it was a, a harsh discipline, and I understand the need for that at times, limited times. But generally speaking, that's not the tone you take with me. Shimon is not uh, is not the rule. Yeah, you're right. You have to know that you have a certain amount of credit, <laughs> and you 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 spend that credit when you get angry once, right? In other words, you you have to be very careful. As the Rashba taught his uh, his Talmud, who who who, who wrote, he wrote him a question. He said, "This whole city that I've come to, uh, everything is wrong here." And he gives a list to the Rashba of all the terrible things. And the Rashba said, "Look, you've got to choose your battles carefully because if you're going to get upset about this Indian." then that's going to be it. You're not going to be able to, to and you have to have these. Listen, I, I, don't believe, I don't believe a rabbi should ever get angry in public. Ever. At someone. About something, yes. You get angry about something. About something, I don't know, in Israel, something about, you know, Washington in general, whatever. You get angry about, about issues. But you get angry at a person? In public? Rabbi should never, ever lose his temper in public at a person. Ever. You want to yell at a bottle of bus? You do it in your office. You never lose it in public. Ever. You do that. I, I don't, you know, that, that, that to me is almost a death thing. Yeah, I, I don't think the Rosh was talking about I think he was talking about making a, a, a case, but you're right, 100%. Once, it, it, you know, that's the type of thing that can't be erased. Once uh, the, the jury will never, the jury can never disregard the fact that the rabbi uh, lashed out. There are many reasons to be angry with people. I've had a million reasons to be angry with people. But you never, ever lose your temper at a, at a Jew in public, ever. You want to yell at a bell of bus? And there are times you'll have to. You do it in your office, and you yeah. do it. And you yell without raising your voice. Yeah. You know what I mean. you know, Rabbi, we've we've gone really over what we expected oh, to. But no, no, no. I'm not trying. You don't have to say I'm sorry because I love it. But I'm just going to add one thing which bonds us, I think, very strongly. One of the things that me and you and and many of our our group in in high school complained about was the blatant um, differences that were shown between the people with money and people that weren't. We had kids that were thrown out of our yeshiva who they happened to come from families that didn't pay full tuition. Right, right. Uh, right? And then you had oh, others. And that's part of what I said before. The Rosh Hashim spun around as if the rabbis are all swayed by rich balabatim and the Rosh Hashivas have enjoyed moral independence because we are, in fact, the epitome of moral perfection. And we are not swayed by gosh. It's baloney. It always was below. Okay. And, 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 and just as unfortunately money sometimes gets people to do things that aren't appropriate, whether they're rabbis or Russian shivas, and yeah, it happens. Of course it happens. So I, I guess that I think is one of the main, you know, issues that I think Rabbanim have in cancel culture uh, in terms of canceling someone, not a cancel culture of canceling yeah, someone right. out is if it's not just we have to stop a person from coming to shul, but that person and his money. And and again, without getting particular, have you ever been in that type of situation where you needed to make this I've had the mazel, all my wealthy balamathim are tzaddikim. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let it always be that way. So on that on that on that note, let's make sure as as we say, you know, the oisher is the oisher. That is. Uh, listen, the Gemara talks about it in Bava Metzi and other places. People go to wealthy people assuming that they are chachonim, and you know, as Tevia said, all the right, all the all the wise everybody would come to them and and ask Shilas. Let us hope you're right that they are magnanimous and 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 and, and feel uh, the type of schus uh, that they have. Okay, that's about it for this extended uh, edition. Uh, we'll catch you. you next week, perhaps with a new president elect in the United States. We'll talk about the election. We'll catch, we'll catch right. you next week. Take Be care. Well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.